KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the Los Angeles neighborhood of Boyle Heights. It's known today, of course, as the heartland of Chicano culture. Historian George Sanchez will explain how its multicultural interracial past has made it a bastion of progressive democracy. His new book is Boyle Heights. And our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about a documentary on the life of Dick Gregory, the black comedian of the 60s turned political activist. It's called The One and Only Dick Gregory, and it's on Showtime now. But first, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, for starters, there's big news about our favorite topic, infrastructure. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that Republicans rejected last week uh, apparently is about to go to the floor of the Senate for a vote, and 10 Republicans are supposedly getting ready to vote in favor of it. This is a a $1 trillion bill. We're talking here on Wednesday afternoon. This news has just come over the wire. What do we know about this? What do we know about the miserable concessions the Democrats probably made to get this going? Well, I've been cruising the internet for the last little bit, anticipating that very question. (laughs) And the Washington Post was the only news source I saw that actually answered the question of what did the Democrats concede on. Originally, of the $579 billion that was to be the new appropriations, that included $29 billion for an infrastructure bank, which is a way, uh, I think an excellent way, to generate investment. Because when the infrastructure bank puts up uh, X amount of public dollars, by all accounts, what happens then is that the private sector, knowing that you know the, the public sector is invested, also invests and it creates, surprise, more infrastructure, as is implicit in the name. But there was a hangup, and it concerns a venerable piece of legislation called Davis-Bacon. Davis-Bacon is a law passed before the New Deal, passed in 1931, wow. uh, when Herbert Hoover was still uh, president and Franklin Roosevelt was not yet. He was still governor of New York. And the Davis-Bacon bill said that the uh, construction workers uh, working on a federally funded project, even if it's partly federally funded, have to be paid the prevailing wage, the high wage in that region for their work. And this has basically been accepted by both parties since Herbert Hoover signed it in 1931. However, The Republicans uh, negotiating with the Democrats, the five Republicans, insisted that it not apply to projects funded by the infrastructure bank, that they were okay with it as it stood. But if you added an infrastructure bank to the package, they didn't want the workers paid a, a prevailing wage. So apparently what happened was the White House and the Democrats said, all right, if this is your price, we will simply eliminate the infrastructure bank. That brought the cost of the program in terms of new spending down from $579 billion to $550 billion. And with that, you know, a Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night, I guess. So that's, that was the final stumbling block in the deal. And the Democrats sacrificed, 
what is a very good idea. I mean, you know, the world will not end here without it, but the world should certainly have been helped with it. So that was the price of Republicans signing on. I should add, however, that it's widely believed that they didn't, uh, Democrats didn't have the support of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema for their bigger $3.5 trillion bill passed through reconciliation unless that the infrastructure bill in some way, shape or form passed. And so that was, as it were, the gun to the Democrats' head. And you will note it was a gun held by two Democratic senators. Well, this whole deal on the bipartisan infrastructure bill was negotiated with Republicans by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. So don't we owe them a big debt of thanks? Aren't they our heroes today? Well, say. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say this. still not signed on to the PRO Act, which would update the National Labor Relations Law so that it actually gives workers uh, the power to form a union even though anyone who followed the recent Arizona political campaigns that elected hers two years ago and Mark Kelly, her Senate colleague, and Joe Biden last November knows that unions knocked themselves out on those three Democrats, including Cinema herself, on their behalf. Unite here in particular. Unite here in particular. They uh, certainly have a claim on, uh, on Kristen Cinema, which she seems determined to, uh, at the moment, at least neglect. So assuming that this actually works and the 10 Republicans vote for this and that Joe Biden signs a trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, this is going to have been a really tough one for those Republicans because their purpose in life is to make sure Joe Biden gets nothing. Their goal is to block every single thing he tries to do. And 10 of them have changed course to go against the bedrock principle of their party. Uh, Shall we congratulate them on what we hope they will do and what for their courage? Well, I mean, anytime Republicans recognize something called reality, I think, (laughs) you know, they deserve a, uh, a mild pat on the back. But I mean, that's about it. Uh, (laughs) None of them are going to vote for the 3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill that will really also invest in the economy in sort of the same way that the GI Bill once invested in the economy. It'll make it easier for uh, lots of Americans to be better better educated and more productive. What a subversive idea that is. Anyway, uh, we, shall, uh, we shall see going forward. I, I do note that a, on the question of why would Republicans abandon their bedrock principles, A recent poll found that eight in 10 Americans favor more infrastructure spending, including a majority of Republicans. We've cited these statistics more than once. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, uh, I I think fixing up the roads, paving the potholes, this is not a, a cause limited to Democrats. And we have to talk about the campaign in California to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. There's a new poll Uh, a good one that shows that Californians who say they expect to vote in the September recall election are almost evenly divided over whether to remove the governor. It's a statistical dead heat, even though the no vote on recall is slightly ahead. It's not statistically significant. We have been saying here for weeks that Californians solid Democratic majority would provide an impenetrable shield for Gavin Newsom. What's going on? 
Well, I'm reminded of the Yeats poem, The Second Coming, in which he wrote that uh, the best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Passionate intensity is the calling card of Republicans in California. They can't win anything statewide unless an election only you know, brings furiously pissed off people to the polls. If I were the Republicans, I would actually not run any candidates in a regular statewide election. I would only uh, seek to recall Democrats because it's very easy for Republicans to gin up anger for real or imaginary causes you know, against the, the mere fact that a Democrat holds office. So it's a problem. But I want to highlight one particular issue, which I'm currently writing about. Let's say the Republican, the recall passes and the uh, elected Republican is Larry Elder, who is a right-wing nut and widely known as a, as a talk show host. Now, he really can't impact legislation. The Democrats have veto-proof majorities in both houses of the legislature. Uh, he would surely be defeated in the next regular election in November 2022. So what mischief can this guy do? Well, I have one horrifying thought. Uh-oh. If anything happens to Dianne Feinstein, who is, you know, a virtually a nonagenarian, guess who would appoint her successor uh, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. the following year? Uh, and guess yeah, what yeah, that yeah, would yeah. do to every single Democratic plan nationally? I want that terror to be struck in Democratic hearts here and around the nation. Uh, that would be a goddamn cataclysm. And, you know, uh, it argues, just in case this election really does look to be close, for Feinstein resigning either now, so Newsom can appoint a successor, or in the little period of time between the uh, result and the swearing in of the new governor. I mean, we've been down this road before with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're down this road again with Stephen Breyer. But this would be worse. This would be giving control of the Senate to Republicans, you know, conceivably uh, later this year, uh, if, if something were to happen to Feinstein, who is one elderly person who, um, you know, uh, one cannot ever be sure about actuarially how she and therefore the nation stand. So I just Excellent wanna... point. And, and let me <clears throat> just add that progressives have been arguing for at least a year that Dianne Feinstein should step down now. I wrote an LA Times op-ed about that about two and a half years ago. Two and a uh, half years ago. You know, I mean, uh, this is, you know, th this is dangerous stuff. And I was writing it uh, when she was just thinking about running one more time, which in fact she did, and of course won. Uh, she was opposed in the primary by uh, uh, former uh, Assembly Speaker Kevin DeLeon, a state Senate president, now an LA city council member, but I, 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 this is really playing with fire and it's, uh, it's a dangerous game to play. We, we stand uh, in, uh, uh, alarmed and upset. I wanna get back to, to the national picture and to Congress. Uh, there's a new piece posted just now at the Washington Post that's about the voting rights uh, situation, which we've talked about here many, many times. The headline is, Democrats craft revised voting rights bill seeking to keep hope alive in the Senate. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Well, I, I read that piece, and it doesn't really say much about what's in the bill, except that it's pretty much like the earlier bill that didn't go anywhere. Uh, what it doesn't say, which is the only, you know, really significant point, is whether Mansion and Company, Mansion and Cinema, 
will vote either to suspend the filibuster in considering this bill or get rid of it altogether. Because it really doesn't matter what's in the bill. It matters, uh, what matters is whether it takes 60 votes or 50 votes plus the vice presidents to pass it. Uh, and the story doesn't actually have anything about that. So uh, uh, that's really the question on voting rights. It's not what's so much what's in the bill. It's, it's about whether the Democrats are going to let a few senators affection for minority rights in the Senate, for uh, i.e. the filibuster, to trump Americans' uh, untrammeled right to vote. And let us recall something you have written about recently. Our president said that would, he does not support changing the filibuster rule, that it would, what did he say, it would create chaos? Yeah, well, I, you know, uh, my, my friend E.J. Dion writing a column basically said, oh, God, this is, this is Biden going off script. Uh, can't the White House uh, rein him in because, you know, he, he was just extemporizing and got it backwards. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, from my sources, I think it is the case that uh, Biden is still at some level wedded to the filibuster, but he doesn't really get a vote on this. This is up to the Senate. Uh, this doesn't go before the president. And uh, if the Senate wants a, 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 you know, a legacy, if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema want a legacy that is more positive than negative. This is up to them. New topic. You have a new piece at the prospect at prospect.com that opens with the question, what's the most successful economic justice movement of the past decade? What's the answer? Well, before I answer the question, it's not prospect.com, it's prospect.org. So uh, that's <laughs> having, having established that, uh, the answer is, uh, is the fight for 15. Uh, the campaign to raise the minimum wage, which began with a walkout at one fast food restaurant in Brooklyn uh, in 2012, which is backed by the successor group in New York to ACORN, uh, New York Communities for Change, and SEIU. Um, and the uh, slogan then and the goal then, particularly for SEIU, was uh, fight for 15 and a union. Well, the National Employment Law Project, which is an invaluable think tank and advocacy group uh, based in Washington, just came out with a study yesterday looking at how many American workers had had their wages raised because of increases in the minimum wage laws at the state and local level, which have basically been prompted by this movement over the past decade, which commendably SEIU has continued to fund and organize. And, and the, their answer was 26 million, of whom wow. 18 million were women, and 12 million were, were workers of color. So wow. this, is, this is a big deal. And, and they figured the increase dollar amount uh, for all these workers came out to about $150 billion, which came out to about $5,300 per worker, which, isn't, uh, which, which is not negligible when you're working at that level of income, uh, quite the contrary. So here's the deal. State and local governments have the legal power to raise the minimum wage in their jurisdiction they do not have the power to affect uh, the right to unionize. That is preempted by federal law, the National Labor Relations Act, and all attempts to improve the National Labor Relations Act so it actually defends workers when they're attempting to unionize have been thwarted for the last 50 plus years in Congress. They've never had the votes in the Senate, and they certainly don't have the votes in the Senate now, absent, uh, again, scrapping the filibuster. And even then, there are a couple of Democrats who are, are wafflers. 
the above named Kristen Cinema and Virginia's own Mark Warner. So, so they've gotten the $15, particularly in California, New York, where the minimum wage was raised statewide in both cases, but they haven't gotten the union. And greatly to its credit, because I understood this was making America better, even though they weren't gaining a single new member, SEIU uh, you know, funded tens of millions of dollars over the years uh, into this campaign. So uh, when I said, you know, who is the most successful poverty fighter of the last decade, I nominated the president of SEIU, Mary Kay Henry. I second the nomination. We've only got a couple minutes left here. I just want to get <clears throat> talk briefly about the January 6th insurrection. One thing that's not part of the hearings right now is a lawsuit by Representative Eric Swalwell of California, who's suing Trump, Don Jr., and Representative Mo Brooks, accusing them of violating federal law in their speeches uh, at the rally before the uh, storming of the Capitol, that they conspired to prevent an elected official from performing official duties, which is a federal crime. During that rally, uh, Mo Brooks told attendees that the United States uh, was at a risk unlike it has been in decade and that their ancestors, quote, sacrificed their blood, sweat, tears, and fortunes, and sometimes their lives for their country. Are you willing to do the same? He said, quote, are you willing to do what it takes to fight for America? Close quote. Mo Brooks challenged Swalwell, saying that this speech was protected because elected officials cannot be sued in the conduct of their for speeches made in the conduct of their work the justice department has just issued its opinion which i want to quote for you inciting a violent attack on the united states congress is not within the scope of employment of any federal employee close quote because i think brooks also wanted the federal government to put up the dough for his defense and the justice department said no way so uh yeah i i think uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, Abraham Lincoln when he was taken to task for imprisoning uh, some Confederate sympathizers in the North and who had been doing this. And he said, is all the Constitution to be struck down because we preserve this one clause? And I think it's a kind of analogous, uh, analogous to that. We end by quoting Lincoln. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about how a Los Angeles neighborhood, Boyle Heights, became a bastion of progressive democracy. For that, we turn to George Sanchez. He's author of the award-winning book, Becoming Mexican American, and he teaches American studies and ethnicity and history at USC. He's also the president of the Organization of American Historians. His new book is titled Boyle Heights. We reached him today in LA. George Sanchez, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. Well, Boyle Heights, for those who don't know, is the Chicano and Mexican-American neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's just five minutes east of City Hall across the L.A. River. Today, it's known as the heartland of Chicano culture. Historically, would you call Boyle Heights a ghetto or a barrio? 
Well, I, I guess I would call it uh, a little bit of that and uh, also a, a kind of multiracial neighborhood. So it's always been a working class neighborhood. It's always been a place for people who worked in the nearby factories uh, and industry. But it, but it, uh, I don't think the people in Boyle Heights would call themselves living in a in a ghetto or a barrio. I think they would describe Boyle Heights as very multiracial, very very American. Therefore, from their perspective, and it wasn't really until after 1960 that it became majority Latino. So Boyle Heights has tended to separate itself off a little bit from the rest of East Los Angeles, thinking of itself as with this unique history of activism across racial groups. So. I think, though, many people would see it as a barrio, and it certainly has had, you know, working class background. It, it, it's certainly much more than that. You show how lots of immigrant groups started out there in the 20th century. First, the East European Jews and Italians, Japanese immigrants, even white Southerners. How come they all picked Boyle Heights? Um, well, first of all, a lot of the rest of Los Angeles uh, was often not available to them. Um, there was racially restrictive covenants in an early part of the 20th century that included not only restrictions against African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, but also many white ethnics that would otherwise have moved other places. Um, uh, but also it was fundamentally close to the growing industry of Los Angeles along the LA River uh, in the industrial section to the south uh, near the city of Vernon. So it was a place that one could afford and could be close to various places of employment. And I think that's why Boyle Heights became such a, a place to land when you first arrived in Los Angeles. You open your book on the eve of World War II with a story about two high school girls, Molly Wilson and Sandy Saito. Uh, tell us what you found out about them and about that letter Sandy Saito sent to Molly Wilson, June 1st, 1942. So let me tell you first about how we got the letter. Um, we, uh, we were doing, uh, and this was when I was working with the Japanese American National Museum to do a, an exhibition on Boyle Heights. And an elderly African-American woman, uh, turned out to be Molly Wilson, came in with two uh, bags, uh, you know, grocery bags full of letters and said, you know, I think I want to give these to you. Um, and it turned out these were letters, uh, return mail from letters she had sent to her Japanese-American friends while, while she was in high school. And they would send back these letters to her uh, all through the time that they were in internment camp. So basically around four years or so. Um, and she had kept them in her closet for 50 years. Wow. Um, and so she walked in and she, you know, we were kind of amazed uh, about this. And it and Molly had uh, as they were heading into high school um, in 1942, um, it, you know, this was the time in which Japanese Americans were interned uh, by President Roosevelt. Um, Molly was very upset. She was a 14 year old, very upset about about this, taking away her, her best friends, essentially, as she entered high school. And so her own personal form of protest was to write a letter to each of her closest friends every week throughout the war. She just said, as long as they're away, I'm going to keep writing. And she did. She kept it up all through high school. Um, and it turns out that it tells you a lot of stories because when we interviewed uh, her and her friends, um, her friends were the ones that told us the story about them, that group in junior high school 
in which uh, they had stood up for Molly because when Molly, Molly was very popular and when she uh, was going to run for student body president of Hollenbeck Junior High School, um, the principal called her aside and said, Molly, we don't think it's a good idea for you to be to be a student body president of this school. She didn't really understand why. And then she figured it out that it was because she was black. And the friends were so outraged that they all decided none of them would run for student body offices. They were all ready to, to do, you know. And so it was that backing up of her that led Molly to feel very uh, wounded when when uh, Japanese Americans were interned. Roosevelt High School would end up losing one third of its student body, mm-hmm. um, its student body president, its uh, editor of the school newspaper uh, when when entering World War II. And that letter, that letter of June 1st, which you reproduce in your book, has a drawing as part of it. Tell us about the drawing. So um, the first place that Japanese Americans who were coming from Boral Heights were interned was the Santa Anita racetrack. And they were kept in basically stalls that had been set up for horses. And so this letter was writing to Molly, if you want to visit, this is what you would encounter. And and Sandy uh, drew, uh, you know, the fence where Molly would stand, armed guards, and then where, where her friends could stand. And it turns out that Molly wasn't alone, uh, along with a lot of other Boyle Heights residents who were not Japanese Americans, to go and visit those Japanese Americans at Santa Anita. It was close enough that people could get there. And that was the summer of 42 before they were sent off to more permanent uh, internment camps. So a pretty powerful statement from a 14-year-old perspective. Amazing. Uh, let's talk about a couple of specific uh, historical moments, starting with Jewish Boyle Heights, a history that is being recovered these days. Um, Jewish Boyle Heights is very important. Jews were probably the, the largest group in Boyle Heights uh, from in the 20s, the 30s, um, and really uh, up to World War II. Um, they uh, came from Eastern European backgrounds uh, primarily, but they had often already spent time somewhere in the East, uh, New York or Chicago or, or Philadelphia, somewhere. And so Los Angeles was a secondary area of migration. These were working class Jews. They tended to be people who were affiliated with uh, a number of labor unions in uh, the city of Los Angeles. Um, so a lot of union activity sort of centered in Boyle Heights, Uh Garment workers, hatters, carpenters unions all set up shop in Boral Heights. Um, they also were heavily uh, Yiddish speaking. The history of Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish background in Boral Heights is really critical to understand what was going on. And uh, at that point, people were investing in Yiddish uh, as a way of sort of combating uh, what they saw was happening in Europe in the 1930s. And so there was a lot of uh, newspapers, there was uh, uh, poetry circles, there, were, there was uh, folk uh, uh, schools for, for kids. Um, so the Yiddish life in Boyle Heights was actually fairly uh, substantial. Uh, the Jews, however, also lived among other people. So one of the things I think is really critical is to understand that the story sometimes it's told today as if Jews used to live there and then they left and other people moved in like Mexicans and so forth. When in reality, Jews were living in a multiracial community. And so um, th- there's just uh, all this interesting interaction that occurs um, really from the beginning of the 20th century all through uh, World War II um, that speaks to the fact that, that Boyle Heights was absolutely a multiracial place. 
Um, it doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination, Boyle Heights, different kinds of backgrounds, but it does mean that that um, uh, the, the community formations were happening uh, with an acknowledgement of how mixed Boyle Heights was. One of the biggest political events in the history of Boyle Heights of the last century that you recount came in spring 1968, the very surprising uh, not the organized civil rights movement, not the labor movement, but high school students walking out in protest against conditions in their schools. Talk, let's talk about the high school walkouts of 1968. Sure. Um, I was able to interview uh, several participants um, and particularly focused on women who seem to be under under uh, studied in that lead up to, to the 68 walkouts. Um, one of the things that happened uh, in the 50s and 60s is the, the makeup of high schools in Boyle Heights actually changed dramatically from being overwhelmingly Jewish and Japanese to a much more Mexican-oriented um, uh, student body. However, there was still a lot of uh, real basic uh, differences between the education that they got. The Mexicans were often put in home economics or in uh, auto shop, not in college prep courses. And the college prep curriculums that each of the schools had were often still very white and very very Asian American. So, so that differential drove a lot of Mexican-American students to really wonder what was going on in their schools. Why wasn't there more Mexican-American teachers? Uh, why weren't they being encouraged to college? And so beginning in the early 60s, um, Mexican-American students went to Camp Hess Kramer uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains, where they, they uh, partnered with uh, older students, with some teachers. Sal Castro was among them and, and really learned about um, you know, what was happening much you know, beyond their own community in Boyle Heights. They realized the differentials between schools on the west side and the east side that they were on. Um, and they began to organize themselves at a local level uh, to enact some kind of protest. Um, they also learned from what was, what was going on in Los Angeles. They learned from, from the Watts riots. They learned from um, other examples of protests, uh, Cesar Chavez, the UFW, um, and they decided they needed to do something uh, very uh, 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 public. And so they were aiming, with the help of Sal Castro and some older college students, to actually uh, walk out at the very end of uh, the 1968 uh, spring semester. Uh, but in fact, what happened was because of a, uh, uh, a, a tension over a theater, Barefoot in the Park, uh, being canceled at uh, one of the schools, uh, they all walk, walked out early in March. And uh, so basically five high schools on the east side of Los Angeles all walked out within the first few days. And it was the biggest urban protest that sort of launched the, the uh, Chicano movement in Los Angeles. Um, again, I think that these high school students have to be recognized as high school students who in the spring of 68, of course, were going through tremendous upheaval in their lives while, you know, uh, Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. They met with Robert Kennedy uh, 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 just, just weeks before his assassination. Um, and they were also trying to graduate. These tended to be uh, fairly, uh, you know, student body uh, officers, uh, people who were, were very active. Uh, for them, it was a learning experience um, 
that uh, really affected them for the rest of their lives. And uh, so many of them went on to incredible careers as teachers, as artists, as uh, other, you know, filmmakers, um, that that group is actually a very important group in kind of the history of Chicano Los Angeles. By 1970, Boyle Heights was over 90% Latino. Of course, that was divided between recent immigrants, many of whom were undocumented and people who had been born or spent decades living there. And this is also the era that's known as the rise of gangs. Boyle Heights became the kind of the gang capital of America by the mid 80s. Let's talk about the place of gangs in this history. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that happens in Boyle Heights is that the uh, many of the, the lower middle class, you might say, had moved out of Boyle Heights, not just Jewish and Japanese Americans, but also Mexican Americans. They had moved to the East, Pico Rivera, uh, other places like that. And so you end up having impoverishment, but you also have these public housing units, which, which came from the 40s and had been really uh, not very well kept. And so for very working class people, this was a, and, and very poor people, this was a place to land in Boyle Heights. Um, Aliso Village uh, in the Flats area was a was a huge place, but so was Ramona Gardens, the other the other public housing units. So you had uh, some of these undocumented folks who landed there um, with at a time in which, particularly in the 1980s, social services were being pulled out of places like Boyle Heights. There wasn't uh, summer jobs for young people, a whole bunch of things. So that led to a proliferation of gangs. And so you've had these interesting responses from people who I think knew Boyle Heights history, um, the, the most obvious one being Homeboy Industries uh, and Father Gregory Boyle using the Catholic parish of Dolores Mission to really have an alternative approach to dealing with gangs. He realized that many of these young gang members were coming out of mixed status legal families. <clears throat> they were either undocumented themselves, the young people, or they were children of undocumented with very little uh, opportunities to sort of rise up in the 80s and 90s. And he started Homeboy Industries as a way to replace gang involvement with jobs and uh, raised money essentially to, to make sure that jobs were available to these folks and really saw in them um, the possibility of different kinds of futures. And so Homeboy Industries, which has become one of the largest gang intervention networks um, really in the entire country, started in a Boyle Heights context in Aliso Village in the Flats area um, and, and very much is attached to, to the fate of uh, these uh, undocumented families that, that uh, began to really be a, a very large minority, if not the majority of Boyle Heights. Today, Boyle Heights is fighting gentrification. Will it be able to remain a place where low-income Latinos can raise their families? I think that depends. I think it depends on uh, both changing city and state policy uh, so that more low-income housing is available uh, across the board in Los Angeles and Southern California. But it also depends on, uh, I think, a focus on what I, what I find to be the most interesting part of gentrification in Boyle Heights, most people will point to gentrification and look at simply at race as an indicator of gentrification. Certainly in many other communities, Echo Park and so forth, 
that's what you've seen is a transformation of race. Um, so far in Boyle Heights, it hasn't led to a transformation of Latinos, but it's led to uh, more middle-class Latinos or college-educated Latinos returning to Boyle Heights, even if they grew up there. They're now coming back there. They're buying homes. There's more professionals in the neighborhood. So the question is, can low-income housing remain a priority in Boyle Heights? Um, and uh, can Boyle Heights remain a place that newcomers can feel that they can come in and, and it's a welcoming place for them? I think that's really the, the key. It's not so much a racial issue right now as it is um, really the, the, the class differences that have to be uh, maintained and, and nurtured um, in terms of, of housing for everyone. The story of a neighborhood that was strong because of its diversity and that continues to be a bastion of grassroots progressive democracy in Los Angeles. Boyle Heights is the new book by George Sanchez. George, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. And now it's time for a TV talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. And she teaches at the USC School of Cinema. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Masking up again. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Well, first up today, we have a documentary about Dick Gregory, the black stand-up comedian and political activist of the 60s and after. It's called The One and Only Dick Gregory, and it's on Showtime. Let's talk about the Dick Gregory documentary. Well, this is an absolutely marvelous documentary and could hardly be otherwise because this is a man who had uh, many incarnations, some of, most of them glorious and uh, one of them tragic, <laughs> uh, which fortunately was not the last one. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know all that much about him. I had seen, you know, some footage of some of his early comedies, but it really was a revelation. It's directed by Andre Gaines, and there's a whole host of black comedians, of uh, men and women, um, who are who appear in the documentary as interviewees, but are also executive producers of the film. Among them, Kevin Hart, Chris Rock, Lena Waithe, Wanda Sykes. As I was listening to them. Oh, and Dave Chappelle, I, I didn't mention him, and he has some very intelligent things to say about uh, Gregory. Yes. The thing that occurred to me is that uh, actually, and that Chris Rock actually points out later uh, in the documentary, is that he was really unlike any of them. And my own view listening to him is that he is much more like Mort Zahl or George Carlin or any of those politicized, highly politicized stand-up comedians except, of course, that he was mainly talking about um, black inequality. And uh, he started out uh, like so many um, black people in the entertainment industry as in the working class family in St. Louis, but um, quite early on discovered that um, he could make people laugh 
And uh, so he became, he started his career in Chicago um, at the Playboy Club. Uh, only the interesting thing about that was not the bunnies so much as the fact that he was playing to mostly white audiences. And not only were they white, they were all they were southern white, which means, meant that almost by definition, this was not a liberal crowd. And uh, he was rather hesitant about doing so, but discovered that he was a roaring success, and uh, upon which he said, once you get a man laughing with you, it's hard for him to laugh at you. Um, so they ended up laughing at themselves. He had almost no filter. And by that, I don't mean he swore a lot because he didn't swear very much at all. Uh, but rather, he was a brilliant intellectual who could really size up a, a you know, societal um, a crisis in just extraordinarily articulate terms. The very first thing we see on screen is the text of one of Dick Gregory's most famous jokes, which I quoted often in lectures on the history of the civil rights movement. Dick Gregory said, I sat in at a lunch counter in an all-white restaurant for months. When they finally agreed to serve me, they didn't have what I wanted. Now, that's very funny, but it's also a very profound statement about the limitations of seeking integration into white society in America in the in the 60s. And this came at the moment when the nonviolent civil rights movement was kind of losing out to the more radical black power movement. And he was at the beginning very suave, very smooth, very handsome and extremely dapper and well-dressed uh, and used, um, he was not the first to use a cigarette to uh, regulate his timing, which was absolutely perfect. He was extremely funny. Um, he appeared very often on the Jack Parr show, and he began to uh, conquer the white airwaves until um, the civil rights movement, when he came to the realization, and this is his first transformation, that um, even though he was very successful and making a lot of money, um, he was performing for the wrong audiences. Now, at least according to this documentary, um, Gregory never did anything by halves. So for quite a long period, he pretty much abandoned all the lucrative paying gigs. And those he did do, he put towards the civil rights movement. He worked with Medgar Evers and after um, Evers was murdered, um, which hit him really where he lived because he was a close friend, um, continued working with Martin Luther King. Of course, he was an incredibly effective speaker because he was so funny. And uh, between 63 and, and 68, he became a civil rights activist almost full time. And then he became an anti-war activist in the late 60s and ran for president in 1968 as an anti-war candidate. That story is missing from the film. This was a time when the Vietnam War had reached a peak. The incumbent president, LBJ, was the one who was responsible for sending half a million Americans to fight there. And it was assumed LBJ was going to run for re-election. So there was a big move to get a third-party candidate to challenge him. And in California, this was organized by the Peace and Freedom Party, they didn't want to be an all-white party, so they allied with the Black Panthers to 
run a presidential campaign to challenge the Democrats, the War Party, in 1968. Dick Gregory campaigned to get the nomination of the Peace and Freedom Party, but the Black Panthers insisted that one of their own, Eldridge Cleaver, get the nomination in California. And so Eldridge was became the Peace and Freedom candidate, even though... He wasn't old enough to be president under the rules set by the Constitution of the United States. Uh, Dick Gregory did run as an anti-war candidate for president in 1968 in several other states. But in California, on Election Day, the Peace and Freedom Party did not have any name on its presidential line uh, because their candidate was ruled too young. And it could have been Dick Gregory. His next self-transformation is that he went on hunger strike and he, he went from 288 pounds to 98 pounds in a very short period of time and was put in the care of um, an African-American woman nutritionist who set him on the right path to take care of himself. And at that point, he went from being a civil rights activist to a non-smoking vegan runner who was also a well, wellness guru and uh, did very well at it, especially for the period that he was addressing his concerns to provision of health food for the black community. He was right that the Americans' diet, and especially black Americans' diet, was indeed resulting in obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure. And he was right that it's much better to drink water than to drink soda. And he was right that exercise is essential. But he focused on a cure-all product, a powdered meal replacement drink, the Bahamian diet. And uh, this was a fad, which is what made him a lot of money, but then drove him into, into bankruptcy. And that was uh, more than tragic because he had 11 children to support. Luckily, he also had a very strong and supportive wife, uh, Lillian. And he went from being a millionaire to, um, to being pretty much destitute. And at that point also, he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. But it ended well because uh, he was full of unfiltered rage. And it occurred to some of his supporters that that would go over very big in stand-up comedy. And uh, uh, that's what he did for the last short period in his life. And he had a very peaceful uh, last few weeks of his life attended uh, by his family and uh, a happy man. I do think also that um, even when he was performing for white audiences, he was actually doing a great service to comedy, but also to white people because um, he got them to laugh at their own racism which, as we now know today, is a very difficult thing to do, especially in the light of today's hearings, um, the investigation into the uh, Capitol riot in which one police officer uh, who was African-American was told that he was not an American because he was black. So, um, you know, except for the Bahamian uh, diet, his contributions to American society were, were many and various. The one and only Dick Gregory with contributions from Harry Belafonte, Chris Rock, Wanda Sykes, and lots of other fascinating and eloquent uh, people uh, running now on Showtime. Ella, what else have you got for us today? 
And this is um, a TV series that I came to rather late and absolutely adore, which is Ted Lasso, um, which streams on Apple TV+. I've been watching mostly season one and some of season two. Uh, it began life as a sports promo that the comedian, um, the comic actor Jason Sudeikis was doing for NBC's sports coverage. And apparently it was so popular with the public that they decided to turn it into a full throttle TV series. And Sudeikis is really wonderful um, as a quite terrible coach uh, who has been coaching college students uh, and is invited to coach, rather improbably, a Premier League British football team in Richmond in Surrey, which is basically the south of London. Um, so he is thrown in amongst into an England that, believe me, is very, very far from Downton Abbey. <laughs> Extremely profane um, uh, and quite realistic in my experience. Uh, the thing that, that makes life hard, there's two things that make life hard for him. One is that the new owner... Um, inherited the club as part of her divorce settlement. She's wonderfully played by Hannah Waddington. And she, at the outset, um, wants to destroy the team uh, to take vengeance on her husband, who loves this club more than anything, her ex-husband uh, more than anything in the world. But over time, she and a whole bunch of um, really truculent Brits uh, they surrender to the new coach's extraordinary goodwill, his complete lack of interest in winning, um, but uh, his desire to spread goodness everywhere. He also has, he's quite bright on the, um, underneath it all, which is something that, that makes it different from other comedy series. And it's, it, it really is, pardon the pun, an, an awfully winning series with some <laughs> marvellous performances by uh, the British actor Jeremy Swift as Higgins, who's the assistant on everything. He's kind of a fall guy and he's just wonderful. Um, Brett Goldstein, who plays the profanity-laced um star whose star has fallen on the on the team and Juno Temple as a, a, a kind of twiggy type model um, so it's very funny it's very sweet and it's unexpectedly moving and uh, if whether you've seen season one or not season one I think was only three episodes season two is going to be 12 and they've already ordered up season three for next year that's how successful it's been I was very loath to watch it because I'm not interested in sports but uh, I can't wait Ted Lasso the comedy about the American college football coach who goes to England to coach there. Season two on Apple TV+. Plus. We have time for one more briefly. We have another uh, superlative documentary. Um, unfortunately, it's much more downbeat um, than uh, the one and only Dick Gregory. It's called Sabaya. Um, which is an Arabic term. I, I don't know the exact translation, but it basically describes the, the Yazidi sex slaves who were held by ISIS during ISIS' heyday and then hidden by them in um, really the most dangerous camp uh, in Syria after ISIS was defeated, the Al-Hol camp. And this is the story of, uh, it's directed by 
uh, Hogia Hirori, who is a Swedish Swedish Kurd, um, who uh, uh, and you know these camps were guarded by Kurds. So he or she, and I'm not sure which it is. Um, I suspect it's it's a she uh, had a, a you know a personal interest in in this. What she does, or or he, um, is to follow. Uh, a group of Yazidis who, you know, had been liberated and now had formed uh, the Yazidi Home Center, which was really just a very big house. Um, and uh, a few men and female infiltrators dressed in full Muslim dress, head to toe, went into the camps to armed with with prior information about you know particular young girls who had been who were being hidden um, by uh, uh, ISIS women and men in the camps and took them out and uh, they were armed only with a mobile phone and a gun that that was it so it's a very then the focus is extremely nar narrow as you see these people go from tent to tent they must have agreed in advance for the filmmaker to, to have gone with them. Um, some of these poor young girls, um, there was one who was seven years old, if you can believe that, but most of them were in their teens. Uh, and um, of course, all these ISIS women are saying, no, 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 we don't know even know who they are and we're not ISIS anyway. And they systematically, methodically and doggedly um, show them show them the evidence that they were. They bring them out and they take them home to this center where their wives act as the rehab for these girls, which is a very very difficult thing. Um, the the tragedy is is really augmented by the fact that uh, many of them have had children by ISIS um, men. And they cannot, in some cases, the families of these young girls would not accept the babies. So they had to, on top of everything else, um, they had to leave the babies behind at, at the home center. It really is an extraordinarily um, a tragic story. A few have been saved. And uh, in a coda, at the end of the film, we're told that there are thousands of Yazidi girls still missing. And where can we see Sabaya? At the moment, we can see it in theatres at, at the Lemley Royal and the Playhouse 7 in Pasadena. Apparently, they are going to see how that goes, and then it will get an expansion on August the 6th, which is not very long, into VOD, but they don't know which uh, platforms yet. Ella Taylor, our film and DV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics 
thinking about the left and living in the USA.